1: AuditBoard's integrated suite of easy-to-use audit, risk, and compliance solutions streamlines internal audit, SOX compliance, risk management, and security compliance. Automate processes and improve execution with AuditBoard's purpose-built solution, which is designed to address the most pressing challenges of today's practitioners. Experience the latest in audit, risk, and compliance technology. Visit AuditBoard.com to schedule your product walkthrough to see AuditBoard's award-winning platform in action today. Today we have Terry O'Daniel on the show. Terry is the Director of Engineering, Risk and Compliance at Instacart. He held similar positions at Netflix, Salesforce, and Yahoo. I was interested to get his thoughts in coming from those innovative companies, of, of relative to GRC and internal audit. And so that's kind of the the overarching theme of the episode. We also talk about what engineering actually means at a high-tech growth company. So I think a lot of people think engineering, and we think buildings and bridges and, and things like that. But I wanted to ask him what that meant within a high-growth tech company. Terry's in the second line, and so I wanted to get his thoughts on what what is the pain that you have in working with internal audits? So I think that's an interesting perspective to have from his side. And then one thing that terry mentioned early was this idea of cost to audit versus cost to comply so he goes into what that means and gives some examples and also talks about uh, continuous compliance so very interesting stuff i hope you all enjoy it here we go well i know like so when we first started unfortunately before i hit the record button you were telling me about your management style and how almost i was asking about your project management style actually and so that was really, I thought it was really good. Like, I really like your approach and I, I wanted you to kind of reiterate that if you could for the uh, for the listeners.
0: Absolutely. I I think my management style is definitely influenced by the fact that I come out of a software engineering background and because I've worked for a lot of small startups early in my career. So I, I maybe didn't have a lot of bad habits that you can sort of lacquer on at, at large enterprises. I didn't have a lot of bad habits to unlearn, I think. And I think the core of my management style in general is is based around transparency and empathy. Mm -hmm. I very much want my team to succeed, and I want to find the win-win with our partners and stakeholders. I want to find a way to help other people realize the value of the work we're doing. And to do that, we need to build the demand for the services we're selling, as it were. So I think helping people understand how, helping my team understand how to sort of pitch out to our partners and stakeholders, how they can help them mm-hmm. rather than being the traditional um, negative view of, oh, here come the auditors, better hide, hide the real work, what we're right. doing. So by building that, that sort of transparent and open and empathetic approach to, hey, I know you're a very busy software developer. We're not going to take more of your time than we need to. Or, uh, taking the time to, to read the documentation rather than just showing up. I think that's really important. And I, I encourage my team to really lean in on how can you give your partners and stakeholders the best possible experience. And to do that, I make sure that I am as transparent as I can be about what we're trying to accomplish, what's working and what's not. Sometimes in, in software engineering, you hear phrases like fail fast. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sometimes misinterpreted. Um, we, we don't have the luxury of failing an audit, of course, but what we can <laughs> do, we can, we can experiment, we can try things and see if it works or not. So I, I adopt a lot of how I approach, um, managing projects, managing programs, uh, from agile, and I really focus on the ability to deliver value to our customers, usually internal stakeholders, but sometimes our audit partners mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. And that means not uh, building a six month project at the end of which we hope we will deliver value, but really delivering the smallest possible piece that we can as quickly as possible and getting immediate feedback from our partners and stakeholders. I'd much rather someone say, oh, that's horrible. That's not what we were looking for at all quickly Mm -hmm. so that we're not wasting time and we can pivot and focus on what's really important. So I like focusing on that and I like making sure my team understands what the definition of done is. In other words, don't just come up with a list of activities that you traditionally think is how an audit needs to be performed. Oh, we need to do walkthroughs now. Well, maybe, why? What's the value we're delivering? Uh, really question those things. And then I am very transparent, not just about the definition of done, but the definition of success. Mm-hmm. And we have to go into that as a journey together with our partners. Collectively, we need to define what a successful engagement with the compliance team looks like, for
1: example. Yeah. I, I like the, uh, well, I loved all that, which is why I asked you to repeat it. <laughs> but, uh, especially on the, on empathizing with uh, what I'll call the client or the auditee or whoever is like outside of internal audit. Um, Cause I get asked a lot about getting access to data. Like that's usually a, a, a pain point that a lot of people have. We can't get access. We can't get access. And I tell them like, it's not a technical thing. It is very much an empathy thing. If you're, if you're talking to the DBA, I promise you, they are super busy and have a list they could spend a month on and still have more to do. And so like, I tell them like, when you go in there, you have to empathize with them and go, look, I I know you have more than on your plate than I'll probably could even understand. This is the value that we're uh, looking at and getting this data. This is what we're going to do with it. What's a reasonable return, right? You know, like, when could you reasonably get this uh, return to us? And usually that's like, a fantastic relationship builder and they're like oh you know you care about like what's going on you're not just in here going yeah. hey we're audit and you have to give us this stuff and if you don't give it to us soon we're just gonna start bombing you with emails and, and all that so uh especially uh, like that approach that that you mentioned but um so i know and we're talking about this from the the audit perspective but i know currently your role at instacart you're the risk and compliance director of engineering and one one thing we haven't hit on on the show is like, what is engineering from that perspective? I think when a lot of folks think of engineering, they think of uh, building bridges and things like that, but not really within a, a tech company. So I think a lot of people would be interested to know, like, just what is engineering within Instacart and like in your role within um, like an IT organization?
0: Yeah, happy to talk to that. <laughs> I think the the most interesting thing for me about working at a high growth company is how much weight the engineering function carries, because it's really about taking interesting ideas that leadership of the company have, and they work with the product team on developing, we're gonna build this this app, or we're gonna build this feature or what have you, but how does that become a reality? It's engineering. Mm -hmm. And specifically, that the, there's sort of you know many, many facets of engineering, but there's two, in my mind, major facets, which are developers, the people who write the code to build the features and, and programs and apps and things like that. And then there's the piece that I work in and where my background is, which is sometimes called infrastructure engineering. It's traditionally been called uh, service engineering, production engineering, et cetera. Um, these days, if you're working at a cloud-first company, it might be called cloud engineering, or that's just a piece of it. And in the olden days, this was called ops, and the idea was devs wrote code and they passed things over to ops to put it live on the servers and run things. And that's not the way the world works anymore. And I'm sure we'll drill into that because that's one of my my pet peeves about um, conversations with auditors is is their misunderstanding of of how a modern uh, CICD uh, team works in engineering. But I think the core, the job of engineering is to turn ideas into reality. And they are always going to be busier than they can possibly manage to to perform. And I think that always informs how we approach, uh, as someone who works in engineering, and I report up to engineering rather than to, let's say, the chief audit executive or up to legal or the chief compliance officer or something like that, I think it gives me a high degree of empathy for what engineering teams are going through. And it gives me access to understand what is their roadmap? What is the, the level of demand that is placed on engineering to get the site up, keep it stable, et cetera. So I, I personally love working in engineering. I have reported up into, I, I've run an audit function before, uh, and I realized that that third line of defense really isn't for me. I really enjoy the second line where I don't necessarily, I'm I'm not a, an engineer Uh, I'm an engineer by training, but not by trade anymore, as in I'm no longer hands on keyboard, Mm -hmm. but I really enjoy helping guide what engineering is doing to be compliant, to meet those standards, to mitigate the risks
1: that we understand from an audit perspective. Yeah, and and you're talking about the pain of working with internal audit. So what, what is that pain and like, what's the relationship you've had with internal audit?
0: I think it, the challenge of internal audit is that they they have a very clear mandate of of things that they need to accomplish and sometimes it's internal standards that they want to check against you know we have a policies that says we do xyz well do we really do that mm-hmm. and sometimes it's um you know frankly it's it's getting a certification done like getting your sox compliance ready or something like that and they're providing a function where and they they have an internal uh ability to validate the state of our control readiness i think the challenge comes when internal audit doesn't come to the table with a an understanding of engineering practices and or don't speak the same language as engineering so i think we and i I referenced this earlier where um, it's it's 2021 almost 2022 and i still have auditors ask us to prove that developers don't have access to production environment And that's Mm -hmm. just not how things work anymore, (laughs) especially in a startup or a high growth company. So I think some of the challenges are training and education. Um, I think some auditors mean well, and they stumble at translating the the risks or explaining the risks, giving context for the risks so that they can help engineering understand what they really need to accomplish. Um, There's a phrase I love which is context, not control. And I think internal audit and and GRC does its best work when we help engineers understand what the risks are Mm -hmm. and are able to provide sort of a translation function between, let's say, a financial reporting risk for SOCs and the actual practices of engineering. Now, engineering is not going to understand a financial reporting risk, but they will understand We agree that there's a reach. There's there's a risk if we give elevated access to people who don't need it. Mm -hmm. We agree that there's a risk of um, integrity of our financial reporting from the actual report to the source data that it comes from. And if you can speak that same language, you can find a way to get, I think, better controls and get better evidence rather than coming around and bugging uh, the engineering yet once again for a screenshot.
1: Yeah. Uh, I really like that that quote, co- what did you say, context, not controls?
0: Yeah, I, I learned that from my time at Netflix, where there's a, there's a strong culture of freedom and responsibility, they call it, which, as you can imagine, makes life as uh, in compliance a little challenging sometimes. But one of the ways I pivoted there is I said, I, I just, I prefer not to use the word compliance. I prefer to talk about assurance, mm-hmm. right? Whether or not we have to comply, whether or not we're being audited, we make statements internally and we want to be able to validate that those statements are really true. So if you can find a way to let people do their jobs, but help them understand that leadership needs to know that statements we've made need to be validated. Mm -hmm. And if you can find internal mechanisms to do so, especially when you can take advantage of internal tools, dashboards, reports, the instrumentation that's already built in systems, uh, in the modern orchestration environment for cloud, if you can take advantage of that, you get, I think, double duty in terms of being able to give leadership of the company validation that we're really doing. you know the the chief information security officer steps up and says, "We do X or we don't do y." Well, h- how did this leadership know that that's really true? And I think you can find a way to provide the assurance for that if you focus on giving your internal stakeholders the context for why that's important.
1: Got it. And so you mentioned you that was kind of a lesson learned from Netflix. And so I know you've been Netflix, Salesforce, uh, you're at Instacart now, uh, Yahoo, so some really innovative organizations. And so is there some takeaways from those other organizations that you've been a part of? Is there like a big takeaway maybe that Maybe after you left, you went, oh, or maybe even while you're there, you're like, oh, that's a good way to do that. Or I hadn't thought about it from that perspective or with that mindset. Is, is there another, um, is there a takeaway that from your experience that we don't have to go through the years of, of learning that you can just give us, give it to us quick?
0: Well, uh, I'll go back in time to, to Yahoo. I, I had the privilege of really building the first governance, some compliance function at Yahoo within production engineering which may seem like an odd fit as opposed to legal or, corporate mm-hmm. or audit or corporate compliance. But what that gave me was the insight into how software engineering works at scale and how um, the tools and systems and processes actually work at a large enterprise to keep at the time a really large um, website and associated businesses up. So I think one of the first lessons I would have to come out of that would be understand not just what you need from an audit perspective, but understand the forward-facing work process that your engineers are taking. And by forward-facing, I mean, in audit, we take a rear-facing view. I need this evidence because it proves that certain things happened or didn't happen. But from an engineering perspective or a product perspective, You're thinking, here's where we are today, and here's where we need to get to. So if you can spend some time understanding the processes involved in that, then you get a better understanding of what what tools, dashboards, et cetera, those people are looking at on a daily basis. What I'm not a fan of is bolt-on controls. And by that, I mean we've gone off, designed a product, built the product, we're gonna ship it into production. And here comes compliance saying, oh wait, you need to have these controls in place. Well, we'll probably get there because it's important. But I think (laughs) I have a great example actually of, uh, I came around to audit, um, I think it was a a database. And I I asked them to show that a certain script was running and they pulled the script up and the database script was called SOX compliance database script. And I thought, oh, this is not a good sign. (laughs) (laughs) This is not something that the database team cares about on a day-to-day operational basis. This is something someone told them they needed to have. And sure enough, Although they were sure that the script was running, it wasn't. And it hadn't been for almost half a year because they had performed a major database upgrade. And usually when you perform a big upgrade, you turn off a lot of monitoring scripts because it's really noisy. Mm -hmm. And then you do the upgrade and you turn the alerts back on. Well, this script was so unimportant to that database team that they never even thought of turning it back on. And thus we had a serious problem of proving our financial reporting was solid because that team had been asked to create a control that had nothing to do with their day job.
1: Hey everyone, thank you for continuing to listen to the show. We wanna say thank you again to our sponsors over at Audit Board, the leading cloud-based platform transforming how enterprises manage risk. Audit Board's integrated suite of easy to use audit risk and compliance solutions streamlines internal audit, SOX compliance, risk management, and security compliance. Automate processes and improve execution with AuditBoard's purpose-built solution, which is designed to address the most pressing challenges of today's practitioners. Experience the latest in audit, risk, and compliance technology. Visit AuditBoard.com to schedule your product walkthrough to see AuditBoard's award-winning platform in action today. Makes a lot of sense. The, the other thing that, I, that we talked about a little bit uh, before the show, uh, when we initially met, was the, this cost to audit versus cost to comply concept. I think that that was something you were kind of especially passionate about. So I wanted to kind of give you the chance to speak on that and, I don't know, vent if you if you want to. Uh, watch out.
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think there's, there's, on the good side, there is a really strong movement um, in, in the tooling space these days. And by that, I mean, a lot of tools are, are rearing their heads up saying, hey, we can make it super fast and easy for you to get your your SOC 2 compliance, for example. And I think that's great. It's a really smart, innovative, data-centric view of the world. And certainly, being any way that you can avoid pestering developers to give you screenshots and focus on pulling data from primary sources, that's a win. But that's really only addressing half of the problem, which is the cost to audit. Mm-hmm. How do I get these auditors out of my hair as fast as possible? How do I understand what the rules of engagement are such that I can give them the specific data with the timestamp and everything that will that will pass their tests? And that's a good start, but it doesn't address the cost to comply. And by that, I mean, you may have controls that require a lot of manual activity. And again, they don't add value to the engineering organization. Will they perform those controls? With enough tone from the top, brow beating and uh, encouragement, or enough unfortunate failures that draw a spotlight to this, they will probably prioritize these, but it's always going to be an out-of-band activity. What if you could really give them the value of the tests that you're performing. What if, let's say as an example, if you need to validate on a quarterly basis that um, users have the correct access that they they should have, that's good. That's a good safety net. It's a good starting place to perform like a quarterly access control, but that's not of high value to the business. If the business discovers that someone had admin access to a critical tool for 89 days, (laughs) almost three months, that's really bad. Mm -hmm. So I think we can provide the business with the context of why it's important, what's the risk here, and work with them, work with engineering to say, what if you ran a nightly script that validated that all access grants had a ticket number attached? If you've got a seven-digit ticket number that's supposed to be associated with every access grant, maybe you just throw a script against it that says, does this have all zeros or all ones or something like that? Well, then it should go in front of human eyes. Mm -hmm. What if it's blank? What if it's eight digits? What if it's six digits? I think there are ways to um, limit the amount of human interaction and human auditing to the corner cases and throw automation at the core functions you're trying to protect of the company. And that reduces the cost to comply because you're getting much more valid data that's valid and useful to the stakeholders rather than, uh uh-oh, it's that time of the quarter again, I need to perform this one-time activity.
1: That's, yeah, controls automation is a pretty hot topic. And I know from the folks that I talk to, there's this uh, balance of like, okay, we don't know if we should automate the control or if we should automate the testing of the control? Is that just like a, a balance you kind of figure out almost intuitively as an auditor of this is the ROI if we do this and this is what it is doing this? Or is there is there more guidance that you've seen that that could be applied there?
0: I think that's a great example of, of emphasizing or, or it calls out the difference between the cost to audit and mm-hmm. the cost to apply. It's certainly uh, very valuable to be able to pull your audit evidence directly from systems rather than asking an engineer to stop their day job and give you a screenshot. Yeah, and That's a start. But what if you could just validate that um, if an access grant has to occur after, or I'm sorry, the, the, if an access approval date has to occur before an access provisioning date, well, I can use a script to do that. And I don't need a human to do that. And in fact, I have very high confidence, as long as I understand the code behind that script, that you know, the person who's checking that isn't a little sleepy today, hasn't had their coffee, maybe didn't sleep well last night, and they can miss something. Yeah. So I think there's a great opportunity to check the to do auditing by automation. And frankly, if you set that up once, there is a one-time cost to set that up. But the benefit you achieve is usually hundreds of hours saved over the course of a year.
1: I think I've asked you this before, but um, what makes your brain happy? (laughs) Uh, My brain
0: is happy when I can work on new and interesting problems. I think in our initial conversation, Trent, I said, at the core, I'm a very lazy person.
1: Yep, that's the quote
0: I have. (laughs) I think that's true. I ultimately, you know, having been, uh, I started my career as a network engineer and it sounds fancy, but honestly, it's a lot of working on ACLs and dealing with routers and things like that. And I learned very quickly that, gosh, I am doing the same thing over and over. And that did not make my brain very happy. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I started emphasizing automation. And, and even before I moved into governance risk and compliance, Um, Just as an engineer, I really enjoy automation as an opportunity to find ways to get rid of the boring stuff and focus on the interesting stuff. So for me, if I can work on new and interesting problems, that is a way that encourages me, I should say, to focus on what is coming around the corner. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, I was very focused on understanding uh, containers and understanding orchestration tools and things like that because I knew That's where the technology was moving. And I wanted to understand how that worked before we started getting questions from the auditors. Um, Back when I was at Yahoo, I I really wanted to dive into big data as it was called back then (laughs) um, and understand how do we answer auditors' questions around this in such a way that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I really had to understand the technology. So I think I enjoy um, skating the line between Being able to audit these systems, being able to understand the risks and explain those risks, understanding the operational security concerns about why do we do certain activities and not do others, and really drilling in and and being, I don't want to say hands-on because that implies I'm shipping code and I wouldn't ship my code to production these days, (laughs) but it gives me the opportunity to get in there and, and tinker a little bit so I can understand What are the pain points here from the people who are actually performing those duties? Yeah,
1: perfect. And if you could, from your perspective now and the role you're in now, or even when you are in internal audit, either perspective, if you could grab every auditor in the world and shake them and say, just do this one thing, what would that one thing be?
0: I think it would come down to understanding risk. I think we pay lip service to risk and audit. I don't know how many times I've gone through a Sarbanes-Oxley audit where I see a project plan and it starts with, we're going to do a risk assessment. But you're not really, are you? You're going to look at the books and you're going to determine the materiality yeah. of the lines of business and then you're going to call it a day. Yeah. But if you really focus on risk, you have a foundation for every conversation that comes afterward. And I'm delighted to say that there's, um, risk has, has sort of been its own little, unique world for a long time and you know sometimes full of uh math nerds and statisticians and sometimes people who are just trying to do the best job of helping the company understand uh the depth of the pitfall in front of them is this a small pitfall that would damage us a little bit well yeah maybe we're a a fast-moving startup and that's okay we can take that maybe it's a deep deep pit And we should know that eyes open before we make the jump. So I think a a deep understanding of risk is important. And this is the perfect time to do so because uh, there's a movement towards what's called risk quantification, which is turning risk, the output of risk analysis, not into a five by five heat map of red, yellow, green and one through five and all that, but dollars. Mm -hmm. You can talk to the business in the language of dollars. That's the language they speak. If I can say, hey, we have a $2 million exposure here and I wanna buy a $1 million firewall that will reduce or mitigate that exposure. That sounds like a pretty good ROI. But I I learned a great phrase from a um, risk practitioner I worked with in the past, which is don't buy a $2 million safe to protect a $1 million gold bar. So I think if auditors go in with a risk perspective, they're building a bridge to the business and especially an area that's being audited more and more because it's more and more part of the certifications that are being audited, security. Security uh, is often driven crazy by audit questions. Mm -hmm. But if you find that common language of risk, you're golden. Nice. You know, I think we talked a little bit about how um, software engineering and and technologists work. and, and, And we talked a bit about the fact that they are, or I think I said, they're always overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. and that's true for security, for IT, for developers, et cetera. They always have more work on their plates than they can possibly accomplish. And I think it's scary to auditors to realize, sometimes they bear the brunt of it, right? When you go and ask an engineer for some evidence, they seem like they're mad at you. And they are likely because they're like, this is one more thing. And I just, I didn't plan for this. And I, you know, it's a little frustrating. And Again, as my team reports into an engineering organization, that has been a learning curve for several of them, especially coming from a large, like more oddity type Mm -hmm. function at a big enterprise. Working at a startup or a high growth company that has an engineering first mindset can be a real shift in thought. And you have to relentlessly prioritize, ruthlessly prioritize every single day. And sometimes the way I phrase it for my staff is, who am I going to disappoint today? And it changes from day to day. Sometimes I can afford to make legal unhappy because I can't deliver what they asked for, but I really need to make another stakeholder happy because it's critical what's for for what's critical today. And then maybe tomorrow the tables turn and I have to focus on legal at the expense of my infra engineers. So I think that's one challenge for auditors, and um, it's almost like becoming comfortable with rejection. You need to be able to. Be comfortable with telling people no and saying, I'm not going to be able to help this person today. And as long as I'm transparent with them about why and what the demands are and whether my leadership chain has prioritized something or I've just decided this is critical today and I'll get to you tomorrow.
1: I think ruthlessly prioritize is the thing. If nothing else, that's what I'm going to take away. Uh, I'm a huge fan of prioritization and going. Okay, we got to do this, this, and this. What do you have to get done? Well, I got to get this thing done. What within this thing do you have to get done? Well, I got to do these three things. What within those three things do you have to get done first? Like, well, I got to do this. Like, calls over, go do that, and then <laughs> keep moving on. Uh, exactly. And, and it's, it's really, like, powerful for a lot of reasons, even um, mentally when I do that for myself. And it's 9 a.m. and I go, okay, I did that one thing. It's like, pff, I'm basically done today. You know, like I, that was the, the most important thing and I did it. So anyway, I'm a, a huge fan of that and I've never thought about ruthlessly prioritizing it, but I'm I'm definitely gonna steal that yeah. uh, from you, so. That's great. I, you know, Tim
0: Ferriss, the guy who wrote uh, The Four-Day work week, mm-hmm. has a great phrase, which is if I only had two hours to work on this, what are the most important pieces? If I had to stop after two hours, like a test in college or something. Yeah. You know, You've got two hours. You got to do what you can. Where do I start? What is the most important pieces? And I think that's the place where we sometimes fail because we take a more, you know, traditional project management view of audits, like the Gantt chart and dependencies, and that's all true. But sometimes you only have two hours, and you just yeah. got to get what the most important thing is. Yes. Yeah. In fact, there's a. You might like this. There's a. Um, sometimes these days, I, I hear audit firms say, "Oh, we're going to apply Agile to audit." And you know, as a software engineer, I, I bite my tongue a little bit and say, "Okay, well, good luck." But I think the thing that lends itself most to the way we work today in audit and compliance is Kanban, which is a slightly different methodology uh, about limiting the rate of throughput. That is, how many things can I work on at one time? Mm-hmm. And if you limit that, then you've got a much clearer picture of like what is important right now. Right. And the other thing is that it's interrupt tolerant. And it's great to come up with a scrum plan, but is everything really going to go according to plan or do you need to be flexible and be able to take weather the storm, whatever comes?
1: I want to restore your faith a little bit then. Um, I have a client that they went through like some training for agile within audit. And um, so just as I talked to them about like stuff we're doing with their data, I'd ask about how that, how that's going also. And they like it. I think I've taken an informal poll of of people that have gone from not doing agile, um, regardless, actually it's a GRC team. So it's not even like an audit. It's not an audit thing. And I asked them and they are like, for about three months, we being hated it. And now it's like, I couldn't, they're like, we couldn't live without it. And so I think for a lot of people, it takes a little bit of time before you kind of can get used to it. It's, I mean, it's a new habit, basically, or a bunch of new habits that you're throwing all at one time that you have to uh, get used to. But anyway, um, so they're still fairly new into it, but said that their auditees or their clients, like love the approach and theirs is very much. What's the, what's the, the highest risk area right now? What's yeah. the highest risk within that? What's the highest risk within that? Okay. That's the one thing you've got two weeks, go get it done. And then if something changes and, you know, number two risk ends up going to three and four moves up to two for whatever reason, we'll go with that one. That's the next one on the list. And so- <laughs> Um, I was actually really proud of the way they've been doing it and doing it from that perspective. It seems like, uh, at least if, if you take this one training anyway, because that's where they got the mindset from, that that there's there's hope out there. So I wanted to try to restore your faith in that.
0: <laughs> that's great. Sometimes I expose uh, people on my team to Agile for the first time, and they they listen politely and they say, this is great, Terry, but you know, this doesn't really apply to our world. We, uh-huh. we have to do things like we have to get things right the first time. You know, I try to give them the cheap, fast and good pick two triad. Uh-huh. And they say, well, everything we do has to be perfect all the time. And I said, eh, you know, maybe, maybe we'll get there, but what's the shortest path to getting there? Let's maybe experiment a little bit.
1: Continuous compliance is is something that is being talked about a lot. It has been for a while. So your thoughts on that would be great.
0: Yeah, I think often I hear continuous compliance or compliance as code sometimes, slung about as a buzzword. And I don't know that people really understand what that means or or why we need to focus on it. And as the second line of defense, my key goal is no surprises. Mm -hmm. I absolutely do not want to find that we've missed something in front of the auditors. Uh, Maybe part of that's out of pride. (laughs) Maybe the part of that's just trying to protect the company. But I think the whole point of continuous compliance is finding ways to focus on, as we talked about, driving down the cost to audit and also the cost to comply. Mm -hmm. If you do those, and if you really focus on the operational hygiene, and by that I mean, writing standards that are machine readable and machine enforceable, if there's certain behaviors you want people to follow, make it easy, make it easy to do the right thing and not impossible because stuff goes wrong, but hard to do the wrong thing, right? If you make, instead of thinking of of a sort of a black and white view of controls in a control environment, such as the age old one of developers should never have access to production. eh, uh, But if you give them a paved path of how to do things the right way, the right behavior you want is the paved path And then the rocky road or the break glass scenario to do something that it's not great, but sometimes we have to, I think that enforces behavior in a much better way than coming around and nagging people with a a quarterly attestation form that people sign off that they promise to perform
1: their controls. You have mentioned dev access to prod a couple of times. And that's always, that's been like the, if you see that it's done, it's over. Like you're <laughs> picking you out. We've got to go through the whole audit trail and do this whole thing. Um, and, and and sounds like your perspective is different. So I think the audience would really, uh, I think that they've heard that maybe once or twice from you now. And they're going, Trent, can you please ask the follow-up question to that? So what do you, what do you mean by that? Why do you, you kind of go, eh?
0: Yeah, I think that the challenge is um auditors who don't work in a software engineering first environment may have, I'm sure they've heard of the term DevOps Mm -hmm. or DevSecOps or some of those modern phrases, but they don't truly understand what that means. And at the core that means there is no hard line between software development, software developers who are engineers and ops. And by that I mean infrastructure engineering, platform engineering cloud engineering, et cetera, it's likely that there are some people who focus most of their time on writing features and code. And there are some people who focus mostly on keeping the databases up or things like that, but it's just not that cut and dry anymore, especially at a high growth environment, especially at a startup. We asked people by design to operate, to maintain the systems that they have built and the code that they have written. So I think at a large enterprise, yes, you probably have different teams because you have the luxury and the money and and the people to specialize in those different roles. But at a startup, the person who got paged at four in the morning to fix a problem, there's a fair chance that it's the person who wrote that
1: code. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just understanding the risk relative to the business environment.
0: Absolutely. So I think taking a view of devs cannot have access to production is just an old, an outdated way of thinking of it. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How do we alert when a dev needs production access? How do we record that activity? How do we treat it like a change that is perhaps out of band or a corner case and thus all it may spend special special attention on it. But how do we enable that behavior in a break glass scenario while, not saying that's it game over we failed the audit
1: hey everyone thank you very much for listening to this episode of the audit podcast whatever platform you're listening on right now i'm sure there's a subscribe button somewhere so please hit the subscribe button there if you're listening through itunes or spotify feel free to go give us that five-star rating it only took me about 16 seconds to give myself a five-star review and it really helps to get future guests to come on the show. So we'd really appreciate that. Lastly, be sure to check out the show notes and follow us on all our social media channels on Instagram, on LinkedIn, and on TikTok. Also, if interested, please sign up for our weekly newsletter from The Audit Podcast. Thank you all. Have a great one.